up everybody my name is james d fiore and this is blackballed uh we got off to a rough start today <laughs> if you have seen several streams of dean blundell's space just sort of sitting there frozen like this that's because we were having technical difficulties but we seem to be good right now i remember when i was young before i got into hip-hop the bands that i would listen to would all be my sister's bands and they were things like iron maiden and judas priest and Wasp and Twisted Sister. I knew every lyric of every Twisted Sister song there ever was. And I don't recall anyone ever playing air keyboards, right? Or, um, you know, air bass guitar. But I know a lot of guys, and myself included, I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but I, I used to play air guitar when I was in like grade four and grade five in the reflection of my window in my bedroom. And then I stopped doing that when I saw somebody play guitar really well. And then as I got older, I used to go to Steve's music store on Queen Street and just, just to sit there and wait for somebody to play the guitar really well. I was really jealous because I have like small hands and they're like little sausages, like little breakfast sausages, and I could never bar. So I only knew how to play like four chords and then strum the guitar at the top of the guitar. But I always had mad respect for people who could play really well. My guest today has been described to me by more than one person as a guitar god. Um, he was the founder of Crash Kelly, Toronto band, um, that, that apparently a lot of people mistook for a Hollywood glam rock band because they just had that kind of sound that just seemed like they were from LA. And he's also played with people like Helix and Lee Aaron and Nelly Furtado. And his name is Sean Kelly. Sean, how are you, buddy? James, I'm, I'm well. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Sorry for the rough start, Ben. No, nah, no worries, man. No worries. All good. I want to start off this interview in a kind of surprising way, like maybe catch you off guard a little bit, but it might be a question that you've had millions of times, but who is Orville Kelly? Orville Kelly uh, was my uncle, um, my dad's brother. He was a professional hockey player who played in the American Hockey League and uh, in the Eastern Hockey League with my dad, actually on the team that inspired the movie Slapshot. Really? Yeah, the Johnstown Jets. So that when you watch the movie Slapshot, what you're seeing is a team, a fictional team based on the team my dad and my uncle played for. Wow. Yeah. So uh, he was How my accurate uncle. was the film? What's that? How accurate was the film? According to stories my dad told me, fairly accurate in, in a lot of cases. Yeah, it was uh, kind of, I, I wouldn't say it was a league where dreams went to die, but it was a rough and tumble league anyway, you know. It was uh, full of characters. Um, and, yeah, it was, uh, I, th I think I think it was, it was pretty accurate, certainly in terms of the violence that the stories are to believe. And believe. you named your band after him, correct? I did, yeah. That was a tribute to my uncle. He had passed uh, not too long prior. And, uh, and I loved him very much. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, 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 I always thought that was such a great name. You know, it, it had such lore in my family, you know, and he was such a colorful, uh, vibrant, very human guy uh, who lived. Uh, he had an adult sized portion of fun, as, as Tom Petty would say, and yeah. uh, made for a good rock and roll name. And it sounded like a cool glam rock name, too. Why did they call him Crash Kelly? Is this, he crashed the net? Like, was he was he one of those guys that just uh, was a pest in front of the All net? All the net, people's heads, people's faces, uh, you know, you, you name it. But 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 he he did it with love. <laughs> he yeah. was he was the type of guy who would. Uh, my dad told me a great story about how there you know some guys were worried about playing against him at one point with his reputation for being rough on the ice and and uh, they they had come from. Uh, uh, my, my, my uncle and my dad came from a town called Temiskaming, Quebec, which is close to North Bay. And some guys from North Bay were also playing in that Eastern League, and they were, they were on another team, an opposing team, and facing them. My dad told me a story about, you know, about, they, they thought they were going to kind of kiss up to my uncle to avoid his wrath on the ice. And he walked over and he gave him a big hug and said, oh, guys, it's so great to see you. 
you know, let's have a great game. And before the puck dropped, my uncle was a winger and he was lined up beside the guy. He dropped his gloves, punched the guy in the nose and said, don't ever talk to me before a game again. Oh my God, that's so funny. <laughs> I don't know, you know, maybe maybe that's uh, that's truth or fiction or I don't know, but I, but it's a great story. Um, when we were off air trying to deal with our tech issues, you got uh, something in the mail today. Dude, I was I was very happy. Uh, you're you're uh, like like the the second the second person uh, to to see this. You know, yeah. uh, I got this beautiful new guitar that I've been waiting for for years. My friend and and uh, luthier extraordinaire Les Godfrey made this guitar for me. It's called a uh, a Godfrey the Godfrey Esquire. It's an incredible instrument, and I, I haven't been able to stop playing it. So I was rudely playing it while we were talking earlier, and I'm oh, gonna. No, no. Try to refrain from from uh, making extraneous picking noises while I'm talking. To you. I, I don't mind if you strum it away the whole time we're talking. It's totally fine with me. Um, what makes that guitar special, though? Like, it's it's custom-made. I was saying, I don't know much about guitars, but I was saying that just from here, it sounded like a hollow-body electric, like it just had a kind of depth to it, you know? Yeah, it's got a unique sound. Like, I mean, really, it kind of has the design elements, you know, of, of an explorer of that kind of 1950s futurist, thing that Gibson was doing with the flying V and the Explorer, which was later adopted by the hair metal guys. Right. Um, uh, but it also has like, I mean, it's got like a Telecaster bridge it's got this, you know, um, single coil pickup. So, and, and just, just the way it's laid out, it actually has like a, I mean, you can't really hear it's not plugged in, but it, mm. it, it's got a brighter sound. It has a vibrancy to it. So it's, it's a very, it's a guitar that feels very alive in your hands. You know, and, and it's, uh, I think it's going to be, I can't wait to plug it in, you know, crank it through a bunch of marshals and, and, and hear what it does. I haven't done that yet, but even just playing it, like you said, you know, it, acoustically it rings and it sustains and it does all those nice things and, you know, plays like a dream. It's, it, it, it's a, it's a beautiful instrument. Do you name your guitars? I'm just curious. No, I don't do the Lucille thing or, uh, you know, like BB King or anything. I, I, I don't name them. Um, but uh, yeah, maybe I should start, you know, I, I have so many downstairs now. I mean, I, I, I should at least label them or something. <laughs> when, when you started playing, I, I'd like to know actually how old you were. What was your first guitar like? And, and you know, did, was it like you knew the second that you put it in your hands or did you have to like discipline yourself to learn how to play it before you fell in love with it? Like, how did that work out? Well, it's funny. Um, you know, the reason I got into guitar was you were talking about Twisted Sister. It was it was Twisted Sister. That's a, the whole reason I have a music career is, is D. Snyder and Twisted Sister. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was just it wanted that, was to it that guitar that had the, uh, the the it was like a target. You remember that one? I, I have one of those guitars and I also have the model that the other guitar player used. I just bought that like it still resonates with me. I still want anything associated with that in my life. Right. And, uh, but when I heard that song, I, I just had to have a guitar so I could play that, you know, da, na, 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 na. I just had to have that. Right. So I pestered my parents for an electric guitar. I, I wanted a flying V or something that looked like a guitar you would have seen on much music in 1984. Yeah. Uh, but what I got was, I mean, it was pretty cool. It was a double cutaway pawn shop guitar. I actually, it's funny. I recently just found the receipt from that, that my dad, you know, got from the pawn shop that I got for Christmas, the guitar I got for Christmas. So I was very, you know, emotional and special. Um, but it, you know, yeah, it was just like, a, it was this weird double cutaway, you know, guitar that kind of didn't stay in tune real well or didn't play real great, but it had kind of a weird purple sparkle finish. And, um, uh, but I love that guitar and I played the living hell out of it. I mean, I also jumped in front of a mirror for a full year before I played a note. Yeah. But I got that down first. And 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 I I was really quite happy just doing that for a while, you know? Yeah. I'd, I'd take out like Circus Magazine or Hit Parader and I'd open up to a page and I'd go, oh, maybe that, you know, <laughs> trying to copy the moves. You know, I, I still do that. I'm a, I'm a poser at heart, really. I mean. I, I actually love that because it feels like the, the love affair that musicians have, especially guitarists have with their instrument starts where they are kind of posing in front of the mirror as the God that they might become one day, but they are clearly not yet. Well, right? it's funny that, that actually that approach got validated to me by when I studied classical guitar at the U of T with, with the great Ellie Kasner, rest in peace, Ellie. Um, 
he was, you know, a student of Segovia. He, he's responsible for really bringing classical guitar to Canada in a big way. Um, yeah. and, and he was a beautiful player, master musician. But he, we often talked about how you show the audience what you're listening to, right? You know, you show them, you know, when you're playing rubato or you're playing a legato line, you know, to have the flow and to, 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 to show actual time, you know, with your hands and how you move. And, and, and that made, that was like a validation of all that rock stuff. Because when I go see Scorpions or I see Judas Priest or you see Iron Maiden, you know, and they're kind of mowing you down with the guitar yeah. all that stuff is showing the audience what's happening musically and, and emotionally. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you said 1984, and then you're talking about music videos. And I remember the music video that Helix did for Rock You. My sister yeah. used to wait till that part in the video where you could see the fact that he was missing molars, right? When he smiles in the in the thing. And then you ended up becoming the guitarist for Helix. Is there a trippiness to that where you, you, you remember watching them and then years and years later you become part of the band? Well, yeah, it, it, it's my whole career I'm realizing has had moments like that. And, and I'm starting to see the connections uh, more and more. Right. Um, the first concert I ever saw was Helix and honeymoon suite, North Bay Memorial gardens, 1985. Wow. And I, that, that show was just monumental to me because I remember hearing the ads and I, I heard the songs and I'd seen the videos. Right. And all of a sudden it dawned on me, these guys are from Kitchener. Yeah. Like I've been to Kitchener, right? Like I know where Kitchener is. I played hockey in Kitchener. There's a connection there, but they're on the, the, you know, video channels with Motley Crue and Rat. These guys are from Los Angeles. So you can do this and be Canadian. That's huge. You can play in an arena and have ramps on the stage and things blowing up and guitars throwing their guitar around their necks and catching it and be from Kitchener. And Kitchener's not far from North Bay, right? So that was big. So years later, to get that opportunity, I mean, I bu- to be fair, I bugged Brian Vollmer from Helix for a long time to be in his band. He got sick of it. I guess I think I just he just relented after a while. But um, I actually joined as a bass player. I, I would have joined as a triangle player. I, I just wanted in. So when I I remember like auditioning for the band and I'm playing Rock You, yeah. and there's Doctor Brent Dern and there's Brian Vollmer and you're there. The first few shows, Vollmer used to have to tell me, the audience is that way. Quit looking over to the side. I just didn't believe it, right? So, you kept looking at him. You kept looking at the band and just wondering why. Is this happening? Yeah. What are we playing next? We're doing Wild in the Streets. I love that song. But, you know, I got I to do the job now. Anytime someone says Honeymoon Suite, I always think automatically of Platinum Blonde. I don't know why that is. I don't know if they toured together. I know my sister went to see Honeymoon Suite and came back and she had this sweatband and the guitar pick that they threw into the crowd and she was so happy but they played together i think uh, at that show it was like 1987 or something like that but is that am i putting connections together where there shouldn't be no no in fact you know it's funny i actually had a chance to go out and do do a couple of weeks of touring with honeymoon suite too uh, replacing gary when his his uh he had a family emergency so uh, i had i had done some writing and and co-written a record with them with him and johnny d and uh, and I took, I had a chance to go up and play with them too, um, but yeah, like it was very common that you would see those bills Canadian tours. I remember seeing package tours, you know, Helix, Haywire, Kim Mitchell, or you know, um, mm-hmm. Platinum Blonde and II. Like you would just see the different configurations of these acts as they crisscrossed the country. Would you describe yourself as a session musician, a journeyman? Like I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't know what the moniker would be, but you, you played with so many, so many different bands, but also so many different types of bands, you know? Yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't start off seeking that out. Um, I wanted to be, you know, a rock star. I wanted to be, you know, the in a, in a band that w- that was was popular, writing our own music, and and I did have a chance not to become a rock star, but to be, be in a band and get a deal and, and get to make my own music. And that was great. But where I found myself falling was um, into doing, doing sessions like, Hey man, I've run into a producer. You want to come play on a record? Oh, okay. I, I kind of just fell into that. And then um, my desire to be a part of that music that meant so much to me, that music of the uh, you know late seventies and the eighties, eighties, especially, has led me, I think, 
I think I've been called, it's almost like a vocation to, to make myself open to those opportunities. Like this weekend, I had a chance to play guitar with Harlequin at Casino Rama. We opened up for April Wine and my buddy Derek, oh, wow. he needed a sub. He was out on tour with, with Doc Walker, needed somebody. So I got to go out and play those songs. And I was just thinking about that because that process of, I love the process of embodying the music. You, for that moment, you have to become a member of that band. Like you have to think like that guy who was making those parts, you know, on those records. And like, what was the mindset? What were you thinking? How does he voice chords? What would he do here? What guitar would he use? I love that. And it it fulfills something in me. It, it speaks to my inner fan. I know I'm a fan first before I'm a musician. I've, I've already figured that out. So that's And you're, all, you're always entering a band as like a cornerstone. Like, you know, no offense to drummers or bass players, but like the guitarists and the lead singer are usually the one and two in band. So you're always sort of joining as like, you're part of the nucleus when you join. Well, is that a lot I, of pressure or? No, you know what? It, it depends, right? Like for, for the classic rock thing or, or, or the, the hard rock thing, it's such a part of my DNA at this point. I kind of just think and feel that way. I feel time that way. I, I, I grew up, I listened to it so much and played it so much. It's no testament to any great ability I have. It's just, you know, time and pressure. Eventually, it it can even sink in the thickest skull, you know, like, okay, I I kind of, I can play this stuff now. And, and I've watched it so much and I've enjoyed it so much on so many different levels. I think I can do a fairly good job of of bringing the spirit of whoever had been there before into it, you know, like I, I, I play with a band called Coney Hatch and, you know, those great parts that Steve Shelsky wrote and recorded. Well, you know, I have to honor those when I'm doing the Lee Aaron gig, you know, John Albany, George Bernhardt, great guitar players, right? I try and capture that, but, but also imbue it with my own thing because after a while you develop your own thing too. Let's circle back a little bit. I want to know how much credit um, for the versatility that you seem to embody, you would give Mr. Kennedy and who is he? I would give Mr. Kennedy all uh, as much credit as I could possibly give. He was my high school music teacher. And, you know, he was so instrumental in getting me to Toronto, which is where things started to happen. Right. I, I, I was looking for a way to get to a place where they made the records. Like my thought process of, of, of doing this when I was young was I would just study albums. Right. So I'm listening to the vinyl and I flip in the record and I'm, I, I know who does their hair. I know it does their clothes. I know. But how do you get there? Right. Well, you got to be in a band. You need a guitar. You need an amp. Like it's piece by piece. All these records are coming from, oh, Birchmount Road, Scarborough, Ontario. That's near Toronto. Okay. Warner Music. Okay. EMI Records, Capitol Records, uh, you know, Sony, whatever the label. I'm seeing that all these, they're coming from big cities. So I've got to get to a big city somehow. Um, My parents were very supportive. And, uh, and, and they were also advocates for education and, and I loved school. I love being in school. So they said, look at, why don't you study music at school? You know, you could study music and go to a bigger city, get a student loan. You could go to these cities and then there's probably opportunities, but you also get it, you know, for my parents, the, the, the main goal was an education for me, it was getting to a big city. Uh, I'm very grateful to my parents because the music education I got has served me so well. And, that goes back, you know, when I was younger, I was thinking, oh, I just got to get, I got to figure out how to read music so I can go do this audition. But what I realize now is that I had a gifted, a series of gifted educators who cared enough to be constantly filling me and showing me influences I couldn't even appreciate then, but I so appreciate now, you know. I, I remember doing, I remember Mr. Kennedy, the, the greatest thing he ever told me was, if you ever see a piece of music on a session and there's too many notes, he goes, Start with the first one and just grab a handful till you get to the last one. Yeah. <laughs> I went, that's it. The front and the end and everything else you'll kind of, <laughs> you'll kind of find your way. Stuff like that, you know, and, and or, or bringing world-class uh, clinicians in to our high school in the dead of winter in North Bay when two of us show up and you get a chance to jam with Oliver Jones for two hours. Like, I mean, wow. yeah, that guy cared. And he was a and he was a great musician himself, and he had passion for it, you know. 
So I felt that. It's so important. Eh? Like I, I remember uh, an English teacher. I was a bad kid in school. I got suspended all the time or whatever. And then I, I was writing in a, in a book. I, 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 I was just writing a poem or something. I can't remember. I, I wasn't listening. And he asked me to stay after class. And he's like, show me what you wrote today in class when you weren't doing the work. And when I showed it to him, uh, his name was Mr. Fuke. You know, he then gave me poetry assignments and lyrics assignments and things like that and actually took an interest in what I was doing and gave me confidence to actually write. And I grew up to become a writer and I largely would credit him. These people that we look at in hindsight, how important are they for our development? Not just as musicians or lyricists or writers, but as people. Oh, it's, it's, it's massive, right? Like, I mean, these are formative years for us, right? Where, you know, we're, we're, we're developing our identities, our sense of self. And you can crush somebody in that time period or you can raise them up, right? Fortunately, yeah. somehow I hit the jackpot with, with supportive parents, supportive siblings, uh, supportive friends, and, and supportive mentors. You know, I, I recently, very sadly, a, a mentor of mine, John McGale from the band Offenbach passed away. Right. And, uh, and I was just thinking, like, a guy like that showing you, you know, I, I bug him with a million questions. How do you do this, John? How do you do it? How do you set up your guitar? You know, how do you play slide? And having him just kind of put, put his hand on my, my finger on my arm. That's how hard you touch, uh, you know, like to get that kind of insight. Yeah. I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been on a session. I touch it too hard. Think of John. What would John do? You know? Yeah. So it's, it's massive. And now um, you are a teacher. How did that come about? Well, I, uh, yeah, basically I was in a band, you know, after I finished university, uh, joined, uh, joined a band with a, a great singer, Chad Richardson, um, won the Q107 homegrown contest, nice. got a record deal, went on the road, then the record deal went away. Uh. And I was like, uh oh, that came and went pretty quick, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I was... And, you know, I was going through some other stuff in my life, too. And, and I was like, oh, you know, I, I better figure out what I'm going to do. I got, I got to pay the rent. And, I, and, you know, I've always had a practical side. So I said, you know, I've got this degree. I can go to teacher's college and I can be a supply teacher. I'll supply teach and that'll be it. I'll just supply teach and then I can go on the road and I can, you know, have an apartment and do all those things and be, and be okay. So that was the plan. And that's how I started. I, I started supply teaching. And then one day I walked into St. Anthony Catholic school to supply teach. And I had the worst class I'd ever seen in my life. Like this class was a true, there was a kid jumping up and down the desk. They're flipping me the bird. I'm going, <laughs> that was me. <laughs> yeah. Like it was, it was, a, it was a gong show. So at the end of the day, I walk out and I go never again. And the principal came up and he goes, Oh my God, you stayed all day. <laughs> All day. And then three women came out and grabbed me and said, you're not leaving. You are going to stay here and teach that class and we'll teach you how to be a teacher. Wow. And I walked out of there with a, uh, an LTO, a long-term occasional contract. And I taught grade seven and I'm telling you, I, I should find those kids and make sure they're okay because it was definitely a learning experience. I mean, I was still doing gigs at night. I had a Thursday night residency. I'd show up in the morning on Friday with the makeup and the nail polish still on. The principal's telling me, go scrub it off. You can't, you can't wear that. You can't look like that, right? Oh, because you're in a Catholic school too, right? So, yeah. Well, you know, it was still, it was, it was transitioning. It's things are so much more relaxed now, but it was still, mm -hmm. you know, still a little, a little bit, maybe a little more stringent, but it was such a great experience. And in the end of the, at the end of the day, I loved them and we had a great year. I, 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 and then, and then I found out there was an opportunity. You could be a music teacher in our board and I jumped on that. And, and from there, yeah, it's, it's been with a few years off for touring. I've taken a number of leaves of absence when I've had to, but you know, it's been a 20 plus career, 20 um, year career. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. 
We'll be talking to the people who worked at 4Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. You strike me as someone who's who seems humble, um, even though you're basically a guitar god. Are you a Mr. Kennedy right now? And is it hard to see yourself like that um, as far as the perspective of maybe a student or two or many in your class? Well, I would hope to be. I would never claim to be because I, I, I saw the work that guy did. But I definitely, I'd like to, no, I, I'll give myself that. I try. I try. Like we have, you know, the doors, it's a door open policy. You come in, you practice anytime you want. You play anytime you want. You have to be respectful. But, you know, we have, we have a school rock band. We have a concert band. We, we do all that stuff. And, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I think so. I, every once in a while I get, I get a student come back and, and I see they've done, they've gone on and, and done something or been making records or doing something, you know, or, or performing or, or became teachers themselves. So yeah, I think, I think that's the great thing about that gig. You, you have an opportunity every day to try to be that for somebody. It must be a good feeling um, to start the year teaching music and then watching a kid or two just develop skills over that school year that was night and day from the beginning of the school year. Have you experienced a lot of that or? I I've been fortunate. Yes. To have done that. And it's, it's the best feeling. Listen, like Triumph said, rock and roll lives and breathes in the hearts of the young. Right. And you see it. And when you see the fire get lit, it's mind blowing. And that's what it's all about. I get the same buzz as I do. You can put me in front of 20,000 people or you can get me that moment. I get the same buzz. I get that charged up about it when that when the light goes on. And I see those kids out there bringing their instruments and they're wearing it like an identity now. Yeah. That's the best. 20,000 people. What was the fire like when you played in Mexico City in front of 165,000 people? Oh, dude. That was a scary one. That was my first gig with Nelly Furtado. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it was a new world to me. I had some experience playing in bigger places, you know, Crash Kelly, my band, we'd done a tour with Alice Cooper and we played some, you know, kind of mid-sized to bigger arenas. And, and I was in Helix and we played some big shows, but the Nelly thing was different. And I'll never forget. Cause it was like a whole other production thing where all of a sudden now there's in-ear monitors. It was just on another level. You know, she was at that point, probably the biggest female pop star in the world. Right. It was, it was pretty big, but that show we were playing on a festival and my mix in my monitor was wrong. I didn't have my mix somewhere. Some, the lines got crossed and I couldn't hear anything. I just heard, what do you do? (laughs) You know what you do? You stare at the drummer's hi-hat. And that's what I did. Fortunately, I was playing with Dave Lang as one of the greatest drummers in the world. So I knew, I said, listen, trust that you've learned these parts. Watch that guy's foot. Yeah. And and the thing is, you can't even pop an ear because we were playing right downtown in Ciudad de Mexico, right? And like, so the sound's bouncing off everything anyway. Yeah. You're just, the in-ear monitors are a beautiful thing when the mix is dialed in. It's, it's like you're playing in, inside a recording. You know, it's, it's gorgeous. But that first game, I walked off and I said, I'm canned. They are going to can me for sure. Yeah. But fortunately, as I'm walking and dragging my head, the music director, Dean Jarvis, beautiful guy, great friend of mine, comes up, dude, you killed it. We're great. So I was like, okay. And that's a, you know, that's a testament to, you know, him, I guess, training us and getting us ready for those shows. You know, you're ready to kind of, you're on muscle memory. What was the venue? Was it a it soccer right stadium or something? And right down the, the square of downtown oh, Mexico wow. City. That's and, a lot uh, of people for a downtown square. Jesus. Well, I mean, I, my, as my eyes kept adjusting, I went, the people aren't ending. <laughs> you know, it's like they're, they're going off on the horizon. And was Nelly doing like, uh, you know, if like I'm like a bird was playing or something, would, would she put the mic to the crowd? And could, oh, yeah. You get that? Oh, yeah. Man, see, I, I get goosebumps when I see that stuff. Go ahead. Well, she's she, she's very intuitive, right? Like, I mean, it, it you never knew what, what was going to happen. 
playing with her. She's a she's a true musician. She's reacting emotionally in the moment, improvising and 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 uh yeah, and oh those those were incredible moments. Like, I mean, that was a big one, but we did one show in Poland for 500,000 people. What? And, I, and I'm telling you, we were, it was like one of those Rolling Stones type stages, right? I went yeah. so far out, my, my wireless didn't connect anymore. I had to walk back. <laughs> yeah. I had to cab back to my, no, I'm just kidding. But it was, uh, it was, it's amazing. And, and to see the power of a song, right? Like yeah. that song connected on, a, like, you know, there are great songs out. I, I talked to um, actually M. Griner, um, who I we're, we're connected right now because of M. Griner. When she told me about her playing in Glastonbury, I asked her what it was like when she got off stage because she was touring with Bowie. And when she got off stage, I was like, "Like, were you just like amped?" And she was like, "I was drained." Like a lot, like, and then I, I I've just sort of sought out interviews with bands that have played for these gigantic crowds. And more often than not, they talk about how, because I'm always thinking like, you know, just theoretically, I'm like, oh, you get off stage, you're at Glastonbury, there's like a million people or half a million people or whatever. You probably want to go and like ride out that adrenaline, that dopamine. And most of the time I'm hearing bands say, no, 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 you want to decompress. That's pretty much what a lot of them say. I'm hoping that maybe you have a different answer because it looks like you might. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I got to tell you, I, 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 I find it hard to unwind after a show. Mm. Like I, I, I enjoy, I found my rituals now and, and I, and, and I, you know, can kind of get there and I, and I, I find it in the camaraderie backstage. That's, that's my favorite. I'm in it for the friends. You know what I mean? So yeah. what I love is when you've had that great show and that experience and you're backstage and yeah, you might say, Oh, you know, I put a couple in the rough tonight or I, I call it going to the confessional, right? We go in there and we all say, Oh yeah, yeah I kind of messed up that again. <laughs> You get that out of the way and then you just kind of enjoy, you know, that, that feeling that you've had this great transaction of energy between yourself and the audience and yourself and your bandmates. And, um, yeah, I, I find sometimes you're drained. Like, I mean, there's some shows we played a show with Lee Aaron at a festival in Regina and it was like 30, 35 degrees, almost, or almost 40 degrees. I don't know. It was, it was so hot. I, I, I I'm gonna leave the leather jacket on. It'll be fine, right? And I'm stuck <laughs> three songs in. I'm going, oh my god, when's the song in? So you're you a little lost like ten pounds. Yeah, yeah, you're a little drained after something like that. But um, yeah, you know, I, it depends on the situation. Those first few shows with Nelly, because it was such a new thing and it was so rapid fire, and I was switching to so many different instruments, and I was doing, I had so much to think about. It was a little bit more like that. But then as that became more comfortable. Um, I remember, and, and a lot of this stuff happened for me later on in life, right? Like I was older. Um, I, I remember to stop and take a look at how lucky you are to be in this room. Like, hey, man, you're at the Staples Center tonight. Yeah. You're on a stage that looks like Star Trek. This is a good thing. Make sure you soak it up and don't bum yourself out all night worrying about, you know, whether or not you're going to hit the pedal at the right time. Like, who cares? You know, it'll be fine. <laughs> Um, you, you say you're in it for the friends. I, I'm just kind of curious. Uh, when you have someone like Nelly Furtado, who's like a worldwide recognized pop star, yeah. is is the relationship that you develop with her mostly professional or do you guys have a friendship? I'm just kind of curious of how that works because you did kind of enter her realm after she blew up, right? So, Well, it, it's very interesting because when I, I'll be honest, when I first joined um, – it was very much like I'd never seen bodyguards at a rehearsal. I'd never seen stuff like that. You know, I'd never seen like, because the scale of everything, it was, it was on a huge scale, right? Everything was big. The production was big. Um, when you're in the public eye, I'm sure there's security things you got to be aware of, right? Like all the, you know, like I've done the thing with the decoy van. Like I've actually had uh, experienced that, you know, like where it's like, that van's going to go here, but we're really going in this van. Wait, wait, wait. What's the decoy band? I, I can imagine what it well, is, but tell me. That yeah. first gig in Mexico, because there were so many people and it was outdoors, there were people waiting to uh. see her go by. And so we, we would go in another van <laughs> and then the police would escort us, you know, like it was That's so funny. Yeah. You know, so, um, uh, sorry, what, what are we talking about? The What's professional going? friendship. Oh, versus, yeah. yeah. So at first you, you want to keep your distance, but she was, from the get-go, she was warm and, and cordial. And, but, you know, definitely I was like, okay, you know, this is a big opportunity that's on a different level. And I, I kept respectful distance. But, you know, as you get out and you start playing, you start 
hanging out together, you realize, you know, like, like, yeah, yeah. Relations to Brahman. And, 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 and I, yeah, I'd say she's a very good friend of mine right now. Like, you know, like she's, she's somebody I respect very much as a human being. Uh, she's always been very good to me when it, when we're working, she's the boss and, and she yeah. has earned that. And she certainly treats people with tons of respect and love uh, as an employer. Uh, and as, and, but she also like, like, like the best creative people, she seeks the best from you too. She wants you to bring you to the table. And I always felt that I could do that. So I could be the rock guy. I mean, I, I was, listen, I'm, I'm coming from Helix, right? I'm going I'm yeah. to wear a leather jacket and play a less ball, you know, like <laughs> that's probably going to happen. Right. Like, and she was, she was down with that. And, 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 and conversely, I learned so much. Like, you know, you said you're a hip hop guy. We had a, uh, an artist named Socrates who was in the band. Oh, and they, awesome. all, all of a sudden I'm hearing this world-class, you know, hip hop artist in the band. And I'm getting hip to Latin music. I'm getting, I remember playing in, uh, in South America and, and some, and we played with this guy, Juanes uh, from Colombia and his band was going, you play so interesting. Like your phrasing is so interesting because I didn't know that they start music on a different part of the beat. I'm playing like, yeah, their rock. patterns are totally different. Eh? Yeah, they like, go like, yeah. well, like you start out, uh, 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 and I'm going, you know, so I'm, I'm like Ace Fraley playing in a Samba band or something. I don't know. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's is, interesting. Is there a trade off with how the music experience is between playing in an intimate small venue versus a stadium with a half a million people and is the trade-off really like one is more performance based where where the crowd becomes almost another member of the band and is the small venue more about your musicianship oh you know what it's funny i i i think you can have those types of interactions in both settings Mm. absolutely so for me what i found i used to find it more scary to be in the intimate setting where the room gets real quiet and the yeah. focus is so laser pointed, and you feel that. I remember when my classical records came out, going on and playing on classical '96, you know, and yeah. then you have Mike Duncan going, and now Sean Kelly, <laughs> and going, dude, like you know, like, like oh my god, like that was terrifying. Yeah. But you walk out into the enormous dome and the lights go out and something blows up in front of you and you're just hitting power chords. Like I mean. That doesn't seem so scary. You don't even notice people like, you know, it's just like laser light show. So that's, yeah, that's funny. Cause that, that crosses over that feeling too. Um, um, I had classified, I don't know if you know who the rapper classified oh, sure, yeah, is. From and he was, uh, he just, he might still be on the tour, um, but he just did, or is still doing uh, a, an unplugged acoustic tour as a rapper and when i talked to him about that i'm like you know you didn't do any shows in the big cities uh, like i'm looking at your tour dates and there's no toronto there's no vancouver and he was like yeah i wasn't sure how i was going to do because normally when he gets on a stage you know and there's like maybe 500 a thousand people at the venue that he's at he's got a hype man that will fill in the last syllables for him and the beat is really loud and the crowd is jumping and he's like now I have to make sure like, he's like, if I flub a lyric in a, in a, in a, like a small arena, no one notices. But if I flub a, a lyric in like this intimate setting, he's like, everyone's going to notice. So he wanted to see how the tour went before he did these large dates. And it's just yeah. interesting seeing the parallels. I mean, you're a rock guitar guy and you have the same kind of worry or the same kind of like, ah, like, you know, when it comes to the intimate gatherings, that's interesting. Like, you know, the universe, the, the universalness, it's not a word, but let's just pretend it is. Uh, yeah, of, yeah. Of, Universality of, of it all. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I find that really, really interesting because the vibe that I would get um, if I was a musician playing in front of half a million people, that would just scare the shit out of me. But I kind of feel like it would be the same fear, like what you just talked about, about that totally intimate hear a pin drop setting. Because if you can hear a pin drop, you can hear your guitar slide uh, like on the wrong fret for a moment, for a split second. And if you hear it, then you find, you probably figure the crowd hears it, I would imagine. Well, you know what? Like, I mean, what did, what did, what did Beethoven say? To play without making a mistake is inevitable, but to play without passion is inexcusable or something to that effect, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean... I've played with enough masterful musicians who have given me the permission to make mistakes because they want to bring out the emotional content of the moment. The best line I ever heard was I was playing in an American band called four by fate. And they basically it was 
Ace Fraley solo band, but Ace didn't want to do the gig. So I, I got I got hooked up to go do it. Yeah. But the bass player was John Reagan. And John played with Peter Frampton for 35 years. Robin Trower, uh, Billy Idol, David Lee Roth. Like, I mean, his his house is filled with gold and platinum. Records. He's on a Rolling Stones record. David wow. Bowie. Like, I mean, and we walked up and we we're playing a festival in Belgium. And as we're walking on stage, I'm going, what am I doing playing with these musicians? You know, I'm having big imposter syndrome, right? And he turns around and he goes, hey, Kelly, make sure you, you hit a few clams so I know you're having fun up there. And it was just like. What does that mean? Hit a few clams. What does like that hit mean? A few, make a few mistakes. Oh, okay. The yeah. clam is, uh, yeah, colloquialism for a mistake. Okay. From, from the olden jazz days, apparently. And so that's good then. I mean, so even even like the top tier professional, like you're one of those, but you know what I mean? They, they're even, they seem very casual, right? Like they, you know. Well, it's about freedom. If we're having a conversation like we are now and we stumble on a word, like universalness. It, it means nothing. Yeah. We both understand what we're saying. Mm. It's had an emotional impact. We felt something. We don't walk away and say, man, that guy, man, I don't know, missing that word. That really tried to ruin the whole moment for me. <laughs> Interviews over. Despite how good I felt yeah. in there, or how funny that was. Man, lame. No, like we don't do that. Human being. And, and, and it humanizes that experience, right? When you allow yourself to have the freedom to, to, to make mistakes. You still want to execute. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, you don't want to make mistakes to the point where you've eradicated the, the idea, the content of the music, right? But if you're going for it and you're kind of, you, bend, you hit something a little sharp because you're in a moment of passion trying to find the big note of the, in the universe, then good for you. Like, I mean, yeah. you won't. Um, as a guitarist, are you exempt, like just personally, are you exempt or do you embrace the sort of technological revolution in music production? Oh, I embrace it. I, yeah. I, I've, especially since COVID happened and, and, and I, I went from being a Luddite and somebody who didn't want to know about recording himself or anything to being able to make records in my house. Mm. I love it. I love the access. I love the democratization of it i love um um i love the communication aspect where we can be making records like i play with lee aaron and and we have a we have a fully functional band with three of them in vancouver and me in toronto oh wow but we're making records we can go back and forth we 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 still get together to make the core of our records we get into a room i usually go to vancouver in the studio there but we can we can trade ideas we can write our songs long distance like i mean i i love it and I love that I can now go on tour and I have my sound in a box this big. It looks like a lunchbox. Hmm. You know, I don't have to rely. I don't have to worry about the voltage being weird on the Marshall in Germany, right? Where it's not going to have the same tone. My sound, like sometimes we go on these festivals and we call them throw and goes. You get on stage, there's a million bands. There's going to be 50,000 people out there and you got about 10 minutes to get it together and go play. Yeah. So to have that, the technology available where my sound is right there and our front of house engineer can just go turn up the faders and the sound is there is remarkable every time i have a musician or a rapper on i always ask this question because we're in you know we're we're at the tail end of 2022 we've just gone through the craziest fucking two years of anyone's life yeah and i noticed that in my own creativity like i i buckled down and i just kind of got it done as far as writing goes and musicians I've, I've learned have a, a lot of them have done that too. Are you, do you, is there any um, creativity or songwriting that you have done during the pandemic that you don't think would have been done if it were not for the pandemic? Oh, absolutely. Like when I think about, I think Lee Aaron, like we have, uh, there's a new Lee Aaron record coming out next week on November 25th or a weekend change. And uh, like she calls it our, our pandemic. It was our COVID baby. You know, mm. we made this record, you know, cause we wanted to stay connected. And, and, and many projects came uh, about because of that. I mean, I wrote a book that's coming yeah. out in May because of that. Oh, you know, really? like, I mean, I, I'm someone who seeks those types of opportunities anyway. I like to fill my creative cup as full as I can till it's overflowing, <laughs> you know, spilling over everything, making a mess. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, no, I'm not kidding. That is, that's the truth. Half and jest full in earnest there. But, um, yeah, like I mean, definitely. That like I mean, it was a forced isolation in a way, but then also it kind of created new creative impetus, right? Like I mean, yeah. Yeah, I feel I, like we're I, we're I entering 
I feel like we're entering uh, or have entered already a, a sort of renaissance age of music. I, I feel like we're just about to start to hear the the creative babies or the the just the 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 you know the special projects that people were working on when they were locked down. And I I just kind of feel like um, we're going to be really shocked to to see how many good musicians there really are out there once 2023 starts hitting and all the stuff that people made in 2021 and 2022 starts filtering out. I don't know. I, I feel like it's it was a special time uh, for music. And uh, I don't know if you've experienced any of that already. But I think I think what it was what I saw this summer with the kind of return to playing festivals like we did festivals in Sweden and Germany and um, and France you know with Lee Aaron and and just to go back out what I saw was a renewed appreciation of the concert experience you know it, it had been taken away and now you're getting it back mm. and and you realize what it means so I think you're right like I think all this creativity that happened behind closed doors you know pandemic doors you mix that with the hunger for the human experience uh, the close companions and the concert bowl thing all of a sudden boom 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 you, you, you're probably going to have something very special happening yeah um how old are your kids uh they are uh eight just turned eight on halloween jack and des will be 11 in december do they know what daddy does and do they know to the extent of what daddy does i'm just curious because uh, yeah, i know a lot of know- times the kids are like the hardest to impress sometimes. Yeah. Like, I mean, they don't, there's no, um, I, I don't know how, I mean, I, I got to play with Chris Hadfield once. So, so my son does really in the space. So he thinks that's cool. That, that's, that's kind of a cool thing. I can pull out once in a while, but uh, really, no, they, it, it, it was, you know, a job like, you know, like when, when Des was younger, I was on the road all the time pretty much. So, you know, I, I think he, he knows that, it, you know, take it, takes dad away sometimes uh mm-hmm. but now that i'm back teaching elementary school and really my touring is relegated to summers and, and performing on weekends for the most part um it's uh yeah you know like they, they see pictures i try and show them a video everyone's well hey what do you think of this and they're like yeah cool i'm gonna watch mr beast or whatever some, some someone on youtube you know like it's it's yeah. like anything i don't i don't think it really really registers with them beyond the fact that you know it's something it's something I love and I oh I think they, they like the fact that there's snacks backstage though. <laughs> kids are, like, kids always snacks? look at the right thing, you know. I go and tell them the rider, you know, I'll FaceTime and say, oh, look at we got this snack and this snack and they like that. Daddy, bring home some Timbits. Yeah, and they know yeah. and they know when I go away, they're usually gonna get something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, some some memento from some town. Uh what's the book about? The book is called Don't Call It Hair Metal Art in the excess of 80s rock and it was a look at um the artistic development uh the sonic evolution and the creative impetus behind the music that i grew up loving so i wanted to you know i initially i kind of had a chip on my shoulder i wanted to write a book that said yeah you think hair metal is a joke or, or the 80s rock is a joke I've, I've i've encountered this prejudice throughout my my career and throughout my life so I wanted to write this kind of sardonic, I'm going to show you, I'm going to baffle you with music science about how great this stuff is. And I abandoned that so quickly because like, who cares? <laughs> you know, that, that, that would have got pretty tired pretty quick. But it was amazing talking to all these musicians. You know, I, I talked to so many of my heroes I listened to growing up just to hear why they do what they do. Um, you know, what was the context like creating in that era? Um What's it like to be a lifelong creative person? You know, like what's your, your, your long line of creativity? How did you view yourself? And you realize, like, I mean, the best part about talking to those artists was I have them so fixed in the eighties. I was talking to Rudy Sarzo played with quiet riot and white saying, he goes, yeah, but we were from the seventies. We thought we were making a seventies record. It just happened to be the biggest record of the eighties, <laughs> you know, we thought we were just a rock band, but then this new thing happens, you know, new developments in technology. Uh, in production technology, digital consoles come in, reverbs, all these effects, things change the sound, you know, perspectives change. Um, the commercial ven- uh, vehicles like, you know, radio and MTV come along, visuals take precedence. All these things get commingled. And it was just interesting to hear the perspective of the musicians actually doing it from my own. Like I, I had create, I created a lifelong philosophy around hard rock. Mm-hmm. I've, cre- I've, I've built my life on it. I have my teaching career. I have my, my kids got it. Like I've got everything because of that, you know, 
Well, that sounds like an issue, but we'll have you back definitely um, for when you launch the book. And um, yeah, man, I really feel, uh, yeah, you know, I, I like doing interviews where I learn something. And I feel like with you, I, I, I've learned kind of what it's like to be the casual observer of a person who is like the ultimate sort of like um, journeyman in rock and roll. I think that your career has been amazing. When I look at it on paper, especially like, you know, you're like a Canadian, you're Canadiana to me. You know, like the people that you've worked with, all these big Canadian bands and pop acts and everything like, you know, I feel anytime I have someone like you on, I feel proud. I feel proud of them. Like I'm sort of I'm so I'm proud of you. Well done with your career. I appreciate James, it. That's, uh, that means a lot. Thank you. That's a very kind thing to say. I, re I really appreciate that. No Thank problem. You. So we're, we'll have you back when the book comes out. And I appreciate you coming out tonight. Sean right. Kelly, everybody. Thank you very much for joining us. Right on, man. Thank you. That was great. He's a really nice guy. Um, not that I did, didn't, ex not that I expected anything different, but, um, it was nice. Uh, it's nice to hear a guy that's so like down to earth and humble, but has played in front of half a million people was one of the biggest pop acts in the world. I, I appreciate that. So big thanks to, uh, to Sean Kelly. Um, appreciate this interview. Uh, tomorrow we have Laura Payne. She's an ex member of the Plymouth Brethren Christian church. That's going to be a 1 PM start. Um, and, uh, it's going to be a tough one. You know, she has a similar story as Cheryl Hope has, and uh, and we're going to grind through it um, and see if uh, if we can somehow foster some sort of positive change in this world where this cult and, and members of this cult uh, find justice. But until then, we will see you next time on Black Ball. Thank you, everybody. Black Ball. Black, black, black Ball. Black, black Ball. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holawati from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. Hi, I'm Mercedes Nickel, four-time Winter Olympian and host of Dropping In, a podcast with Mercedes. This is a podcast where I interview a bunch of different people. I get the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as I share my stories along the way. Now you can drop in at droppingin.com or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. I'll see you soon.